Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. It's already been good to be in church today. I'm reminded of just how much I enjoy coming to church and being around the people of God. And you know, we don't all see everything the same way. Uh, we don't all agree on every little thing in our lives. But I mean, we, we, we have differences. We're not all the same, but we're united by the Lord Jesus Christ. His love, that grace that has been bestowed upon us. That's a wonderful thing. Titus chapter number 2. I'm going to read the verses and, uh, and then introduce the message to you this morning. Verse number 9 is where I want to start. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. And notice this phrase, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. What a wonderful statement that is. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is such a picturesque statement. You can visualize that. You can see it in your mind, the adorning of the doctrine. And I want to preach on that for a few minutes this morning. But by way of opening, this came back to my mind just this morning as I was getting ready to leave the house to come to church. In my reading this week, I came upon a statement by a pretty well-known preacher who, uh, in, in which statement he references this very text. And, and I thought, I remembered it this morning as I was getting ready to leave the house. And so I quickly uh, looked it up and, and out of the book that I've been reading. But he says something very revealing about our age. Listen to this. I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of vital piety in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of Christian living has become painfully low in many quarters. The immense importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior and making it lovely and beautiful by our daily habits and tempers has been far too overlooked. Now, I do believe that the reading of that statement this week is what planted the seed in my heart to this verse. And then the Lord brought that statement back to me this morning. I read that statement to you. This was not a statement made by evangelist Billy Graham. It wasn't a statement made by Pastor Adrian Rogers, although I think they would have agreed with it. It wasn't even something written by A.W. Tozier, though he would agree with it. In fact, it wasn't even said by a preacher of our country. This statement was made by Pastor J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, which was published in 1877 in England. Now, what he said about his country and the spiritual condition of the church in his country at the end of the 19th century could clearly be said without question in our churches today. In fact, when I told you that this is a statement by a well-known preacher and read it, if you weren't told who and when, you could have accepted it as somebody said it today. Now, I know somebody thinks, well, see there, preacher, that's just always been a problem in the church. And I think to some degree that's true. That's why the apostles dealt with it in their writings. That's why Jesus confronted it in the Sermon on the Mount. But... I would also say to you that 
Uh, Ryle was speaking to the decline of the church in England in that late 19th century. And you must remember that England as a country had given massive missionary efforts. Great preachers like Charles Spurgeon came from England in that time. Flaming pulpits and evangelistic outreach uh, and zeal. And yet today, England is cold, lifeless, and done. There was a warning being sounded out at the end of the 19th century in a country that had been zealous for God that they had turned away from personal godliness, holiness, separation, complete consecration to God, and the warning was not heeded, and today there's no power. Oh, there's pockets to be sure. There's missionaries going to England now to take the gospel. Can you imagine? And how far are we from that in these United States? I would tell you not as far as some may think. Is that the path we are on this morning? It could very well be. Adorning the doctrine of God. To adorn is to arrange something, to decorate something or someone. I think like this, the flowers that are put before us in the church, somebody had to arrange that. Somebody had to put that together. It was adorned. That's what the word means. The result of which is once you do that, it's done so that others may see it and say, wow, I really like that. That's really something. That's beautiful. Or as they said back in Pat Simpson's day, that's neato, you know. I was looking at this, it reminded me of yesterday. Yesterday for the chips ministry, I wore one of my little newsboy caps to go to, go to chips. And several of the fellas commented on my hat. They said, boy, preacher, I like that hat. That's a nice looking hat. I had adorned myself with a hat. Well, anytime I adorn part of my face with something, it helps my appearances. And they said, that's nice, you know. Wear a bigger one next time, you know. Paul says here to Titus, Tell them to adorn themselves, decorate themselves, garnish their life and their behavior with the doctrine of God. This is your decoration. This is what you should be known for. Just like my little hat drew attention, Paul says the doctrine of God that you adorn your life with should draw folks' attention to you. But not for your sake. Why do we do it? Because of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's why we adorn ourselves in the doctrine of God. Now, this instruction was given for servants. You notice the context that Paul writes it in. Are we not all servants of the Most High God? Sure we are. That's what we're called to be and what an honor it is to be one. You know, being a servant... And uh, the worldly economy is a very low position indeed. And it's one of humility. And I tell you, often the great hindrance in our life to our own adorning of the doctrine of God is that we are proud. We think too highly of ourselves. We have that crippling disease of arrogance that doesn't allow us to adorn the doctrine of God. You know, you think about this and you'll agree, the haughty attitude of many a believer, the haughty attitude of many preachers, has been the cause of many sinners to not come to the church or not come to Christ. We don't win people by exalting ourselves above them. We're useless to the kingdom work when we have forgotten who we are without Jesus Christ. You know, I, I go back to yesterday's ministry and just being there, I get to observe 
and uh, not only take part, but observe the others of our church that were there serving. And, you know, people are just doing all kinds of things. We have people that are cooking food and serving it in the food line. We have people walking around knocking on doors, inviting folks to come. We have people teaching Bible lessons. We have people playing with the children. We have people that are cleaning up trash and picking up trash in the community. And all of that for the chance to glorify the Father. We're adorning the doctrine of God to show people that there, there is, by, by our serving them, that there is a God who loves them. This is why God has given us this passage to remind us that we are all to live as servants. You may be the big cheese on the block down at the office. And, and, and somebody's got to be the big cheese at the office. But you'd be a better Christian to remember that all of us are to be servants to all. You know, Matthew 20, 27, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. To be a servant is to be living after the model of Jesus himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he was God. But it goes on to say, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. To be a servant is to follow the example of the Apostle Paul who gave himself and saw himself as a willing servant to all men so that he might represent the gospel to all men. He said in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. We are to be servants, servants to God and servants to all men. Of course, in the days of Paul and Titus when this was written, there was widespread slavery in the Roman Empire. I mean, that was as common as, as Roman sliced bread. But slavery was a, a normal thing. And Paul's not simply using this as some clever way to talk about being a good employee. No, he's really talking about being a slave. And I would say to you this morning that if, if you can be a slave and, and live this before your master, then certainly a Christian ought to be a pretty good employee to the boss man. You know, the one that signs your checks? <laughs> I think that it could translate pretty well. You know, if you think about slavery, and I know that, that uh, as we said, he's speaking to literal slaves, but there were literal slaves, you understand, that were seated in the church. Titus would stand up as the pastor of this church in Crete and he would preach and he would lead and he would counsel and he would do all the things that a pastor's to do. And in that congregation of people were literal slaves. They would come to church to worship the Lord and then they would go back to the house of the master or to the labor of the master or to the field or the industry of the master and there they were slaves owned by another man. And Paul says to Titus, you teach them to be exceptional servants, to be servants to those that they are under. Being a slave then or at any time would be a difficult life and yet look how Paul instructs them to live. He tells them to serve submissively in verse 9. He says, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. Serve submissively. Not with bitterness, not with a rebellious attitude, but serve submissively. What does that mean? He tells them, serve, serve to please your master. Please them well in all things, he says. Can you imagine that Paul was saying to a slave, or telling Titus, you teach those, those men and women that are slaves in the church, you teach them to go back and serve, and to serve in such a way that their goal is to please the master. Now, how well would that have gone over? 
And then Paul says, uh, tell them to serve for, not in, serve for, not in spite of their master. He says, not answering again. You know what that means? Not muttering, not complaining, not when the master comes in and however he says it, because there's no stipulation on the master. The master may be a, a heathen, he may be hard-hearted, he may be cruel, but whatever he comes in and tells you to do, you do it, and you do it to be pleasing, and you do it not in spite of him, but you do it for him. You don't walk away. Now, now I know, you know where we're going with this. See, we don't have slaves in our culture today, but I know some of you feel that way when you go to work. And it certainly does apply, doesn't it? Walking away, murmuring, gesturing, complaining, and muttering. But preacher, you don't know how horrible my boss is, and you don't have to put up with it every day like I do. That is true. However, I know this. Your boss doesn't lock you up at night. Your boss doesn't have a legal right to beat you. Your boss can't, if he decides, takes a whim to sell off your family or sell you away from your family. Your boss doesn't have the opportunity to trade you into the gladiator arena for a newer, younger model. So I would say, however bad you think you've got it, it ain't so bad. And you certainly have no excuse to not live as Paul is instructing these servants to live and to adorn the doctrine of God. He says serve submissively, but in verse 10 he tells them serve exceptionally but not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. Should you as a Christian not be a little different than everybody else? Whether we're talking about the job, whether we're talking about the marketplace, whether we're talking about our young people that are in school, we should be different. We should serve exceptionally in what we do. Others may be submissive. Others may do what they're told because they are employed or because they have to, but we should go beyond that. We should do even more. He, he says some specific things, not purloining. You know what that means? It means not taking what doesn't belong to you. Oh, my. This has been in my brain since I was a young, young man. When I used to work with my dad at the stained glass place, that was the only job I've ever had where I literally punched a clock. I mean, I just the only one that I can remember. I mean, I may have at some high school job or something before that, but it's the only job I've had as an adult where I, I literally punched a clock. You go in every day and there, your card was there in the rack. You pull your card out, stick it in that time machine, push the button, you know, and put it up there. And I remember my pastor when I was a young Christian saying, when you go into work and you punch that clock, you're to work the entire time. You're not to steal from the boss. That kind of stuck with me. Now, I can't, I'm not going to stand here in front of you and tell you I always did that because I'm a goof-off. I mean, I'm all for a good goof-off time every now and then. I believe it actually helps productivity to goof-off a little bit. I mean, within reason, I mean, on your break time during lunch. But I remember that. Not prolonging. And then, you know, literally, not taking things that don't belong to you. Oh, they won't miss this coffee cup. I need this one. Ah, oh, they won't miss these couple of pins. <laughs> they won't miss this stationery. The boss man won't miss these stamps. I've got to get my bills paid, and if he'd pay me more, I could afford to buy stamps, you know. Purloining. Don't take what's not yours. He says, showing all good fidelity. Literally, it means demonstrate your faith in all things. 
Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a challenge that is. Demonstrate your faith in all things. Even when the master comes in and says, I want you to go out there and dig that ditch. You say, I'm not a ditch digger. I got hired to do this. I didn't get hired to do that. <laughs> Paul says, display your faith in all things. Demonstrate. Now, if you remember, Paul's taught a number of times in, the, in his writings that we don't serve to serve flesh. We don't serve to serve man. We do what we do as unto the Lord. And then he put no qualifier on that. He didn't say serve as unto the Lord if your master's a believer. Serve as unto the Lord if your master's reasonable and if he offers you an extra vacation day. He says just do it as unto the Lord and of the Lord ye shall receive your reward. Serve exceptionally. Now when you've served this way, then, then you can adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior in all things. You may be a servant, and yet the instruction that's given here to the lowliest servants is that they would conduct themselves and that they would conduct their lives as being robed in the finest of decor and character. That is the doctrine of God. In other words, whether you, it don't matter if you're the lowliest of the low. If you'll live like this and serve like this, God says you are as a king. Now, I'm going to give you one Bible example. Remember Joseph? My soul, we could preach all day on the example Joseph gives us of being a servant and adorning the doctrine of God in all things. Now, again, to adorn means to ornament oneself. It's a word from which we get our word cosmetic. Cosmetic. Now, we think of our ladies using cosmetics. And why is it that they do that? Well, I've heard the, the, I've heard the one about an old barn needing a fresh coat of paint now and then. I've heard that one. I've heard that one. I wasn't going to say that, but I've heard it. Cosmetics are not really that, you know, that old joke's kind of worn and everything. And, and we might make fun of, you know, Tammy Faye or whatever. But cosmetics are designed, get this, Really, and ladies and young ladies, I, I'm just, an, I'm just a, a not quite middle-aged man, so I don't know anything about this. But I want to share with you what I think I know about it. See, cosmetics are not to make you beautiful. Cosmetics are designed to enhance the beauty that's already there. That's why there is such a thing as wearing too much makeup. Oh, preacher, now you're preaching on makeup. Put that one on my list. I've never done that one before. I got it now. No, but you understand what I'm saying. The cosmetic, the idea behind this, the idea behind adorning is to enhance the beauty that's already there. Now, that's why guys don't wear makeup. There ain't no beauty to enhance. Guys aren't beautiful. Guys are rugged, gruff, somewhat smelly. We don't need to adorn ourselves. We don't need to cosmetize ourselves. I made up that word too. But cosmetics, ornamentation, it's not just makeup. It's also things we wear, you know? You think about that. Uh, like the story about my hat. We don't see as much of it in the shorts and t-shirt age that we live in today, but there was a time where men dressed like men. And the way they dressed signified or displayed, enhanced their masculinity. There was a purpose in it. 
So both women and men find application here. Paul says, teach the servants, which we should all be, to adorn, that is to decorate, to put on, the doctrine of God, which will set them apart from the world and draw others' attention to the nature of God as it is seen in their life. Now that's the kind of godly living the Bible calls us to. It's not shallow. It's not flippant. It's not a Sunday thing. It's a day-in, day-out, decision-by-decision life in which we are adorning the doctrine of God. Philippians 1.27, Paul said, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So what is then the doctrine of God? We're to adorn the doctrine of God. What is the doctrine of God? We know that doctrine means instruction or teaching. So we're to adorn the teaching about God. Now, most any Bible college student and a lot of you that are teachers in our church, because you study, you, you could give a rundown of the doctrine of God, the teachings about God. It has another name, theology, the study of God. You ask a Bible college student, what is the doctrine of God? What will they say? Well, they're going to start with these words. They're going to say, well, God is. Now, you can probably fill in the blank. God is holy. Well, we're to adorn the holiness of God. They may say, well, God is love. Well, we're to adorn the love of God. God is truth. We're to adorn the truth of God. God is just. We should adorn ourselves in the just, justice of God. God is righteous. We should adorn ourselves in the righteousness of God. God is merciful. We should adorn ourselves in the mercy of God in all things. Now this is godly living. These are what we call the moral attributes of God. Now there are some attributes of God that are beyond our scope, like His omniscience. I'll never be able to adorn the omniscience of God. His eminence. I'll never be able to adorn the eminence of God. But we can adorn those moral attributes of God because we have been born again. Because our spirit has been made alive and is energized by the spirit of God that's living inside of us. So we're commanded in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. 2 Peter 3.11, seeing then that all these things, talking about the earth, the temporary things, will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. This is adorning ourselves in the doctrine of God. We're called upon, in other words, to be living examples of God in the world today. To adorn the very teaching of God, His attributes, His workings, His desires, His designs. Now, how is this even possible for us? Are we not weak? Are we not undone? Are we not struggling just trying to make it and try to do the right thing day to day? Sure we are. We're weak. The answer is yes to that question. The weakness of my own flesh 
My potential for ungodliness is frightening to me. And you would say the same about yourself. And yet there is this unbreakable levy against the flood of sinfulness that threatens to drown my soul. What is it, preacher? It is in the very next verse, verse 11. For the grace of God. So you say, how is this possible for us to live this way, to adorn the doctrine of God in all things? It is by His grace. And His grace alone that this is possible. I can't do it in myself, but I must have Him. It is not a power I possess. It is not a quality that I naturally own. We are to adorn the doctrine of God, but if we are to be holy, to be loving, to be pure, to be just, to be true, there is but one way. And Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This adorning is not something you can work up. It's not something you can fake. It's not even something you can earn because it's by grace. There's only one way to access it. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now we see here in verses 11 through 14, this is the work of God's grace. This is why it's possible. This is what uh, affects our hearts. We see here that which encourages us and helps us to adorn the doctrine of God. In fact, here is the doctrine of God uh, as it is made real in our lives. Notice the work of God's grace. Verse number, uh, uh, verse number 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. You see, grace brought salvation. It's possible because of the work of grace. Grace is well defined here in this letter to Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior uh, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There you were, just an unworthy sinner, just undone, lost, and on your way to hell. In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is how we are saved. Grace brought salvation. And by the way, it brought salvation. It appeared to all men. Aren't you glad that the grace of God and the salvation of God has been made available to all men today? Thank God for the appearance of grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace. Mercy is when God should have, but didn't. Grace is when God shouldn't have, but did. You see, grace came to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam shouldn't have got it, but God did. Grace came to Noah before the flood. Grace came to Abraham in a little baby boy. Grace came to Jonah in a second chance. Grace came to Paul on the Damascus Road. And one day grace appeared in my life and in yours if you're saved. And thank God that the grace of God brought salvation to us. God should have sent me to hell, but He didn't. That's mercy. God should not have been so good to me, but He is. That's grace. Amen. Grace brought salvation, but then he tells us grace teaches sanctification. Teaching us, verse 12, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The same grace that brings salvation is the same grace that brings Christian living. Grace is no license to sin. 
Grace is not a liberty of no rules or no regulation of life, but it introduces a life of dedicated, godly living. If the grace you claim saved you has not brought about a change in your life and in your living, you have the wrong grace this morning. Teaching us, it says. Literally, it means discipline. Grace disciplines us. We like the thought, and we should, we celebrate the grace of God about how good He is. But aren't you glad the grace of God also disciplines us? Aren't you glad the grace of God calls our attention to our error? Weighs heavy upon us when we fail. That's the grace of God. Grace is the drill instructor in the Christian life, if you will. You see, Romans chapter 6 Verse 11 and 14 tells us, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I am free to live for Jesus because of grace. It tells us grace not only brings salvation, teaches sanctification, but grace encourages our anticipation. In verse number 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, in verse number 11, grace hath appeared. That's a remembrance of the first coming of Jesus John chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But here in verse number 13, he reminds us of another appearance, one that is yet to come. As Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Grace teaches me and encourages me to anticipate the coming of Christ again. I tell you, there ought to be in our lives this growing anticipation for the Lord's return. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. We struggle with the, ad, the, the, the concept of dying. Mostly because we think we're still, as being made conformed to the image of Christ, we still have parts that we cling to the stuff that we'd have to leave behind. You know, we always have an excuse, don't we? Oh, boy, if the Lord will just let me live long enough to see my children grow up. If the Lord will just let me live long enough to see my grandchildren born. Maybe if the Lord will just let me live long enough to reach retirement. We always got something. But I think the longer we get and the more grace is teaching us and the more we're adorning the doctrine of God, the less reasons we'll have. There'll be nothing holding us here. Nothing. And, and, and look, we all got some kind of attachment still pulling don't we but it's like what he's saying is is the more grace is working in our lives and we're yielding to God the more we feel the pull this way and less a pull this way and I'm glad grace does that for us and then he tells us grace promises us a glorification he says who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity you got any iniquity in your life any you'd like to get rid of? You having any trouble with it? Well, I got good news for you. Grace has promised us that there's coming a day when He's going to get rid of all iniquity. 
He'll get rid of it. Why? Because he is purifying unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's the work of God in our life. This is the entirety of the work of, God, of, the, of Christ and of the gospel message. Here's what Christ purposed to do in you. He is purifying you. He's preparing you for glory. But the question for us today is this. Are we cooperating with that process? You see, Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And really, that takes us all the way back to verse 1 of this chapter. He says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Things that are suitable to, things that are right, things which will be conspicuous in your life. In fact, the literal meaning of that word uh, there, things which become sound doctrine, it means something that will tower up. Now, you know why you build a tower? I mean, now, if you build a cell tower, you're going to get high, you're trying to get a signal and all that, but these big old buildings they build, you know, you go down to Charlotte, and 20 years ago, there's like five of them, you know, and now there's 20, and they keep getting higher. You know why? Because they want to be seen above everybody else. The higher you go, the easier it is to see. And Paul says, teach the things that are sound doctrine, which will build something. Build something in the church. Build something in the family of God. What is that? The adorning of the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. So that when the world sees us, they see Him. When the world sees our church, they see Him. Not us, but Him. That's what Paul was telling Titus to do. Now, what is it that you need to do this morning? Right now, in these moments as we close, what repentance do you need to offer to God? What confession do you need to make in your life? What requests do you have that you need to bring to the Lord this morning? What surrender of your heart as it relates to this message of adorning the doctrine of God? You do not need to be ashamed or feel discouraged this morning of your failures and your faults. You should only be ashamed if you walk away from this message and this place of prayer without bringing those things to Christ who has promised to purify us. That will be a discouragement in your life. Don't walk away today without allowing God to do what He promised in His Word that He would do. Draw me nearer, the song says. Draw me nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer to Thy precious bleeding side. I wonder this morning if the Lord might be drawing someone nearer to Him. There may be somebody here who needs to be drawn to Christ for the first time. Maybe the Lord, the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart about your relationship with God and that you need to be saved. Today is the day to call upon the Lord and be saved. There may be Christians here who have been, have been distant, who have not been adorning the doctrine of God. Been kind of doing your own thing maybe a little too much. And God spoke to your heart about that this morning. Well, draw near. I love the verse that tells us, draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you.